Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer. We have one of our favorite guests on tonight, continuing the series we call Checkpoint Charlie. Mr. Charlie Pierce is a wonderful writer from Massachusetts. He writes for Esquire.com. You might have seen him on CNN or MSNBC. Uh, he chimes in on a variety of subjects. He is my psychological morphine drip to all things political. He also appears with uh, semi-regularity on the Stephanie Miller Show, which uh, we air, of course, on AM 950. We're talking to him the morning after the first night of Donald Trump's convention. And uh, Charlie watched it so I didn't have to. Charlie, how are you today? Yeah, I took I, t- I took the bullet for you, big guy. Let me tell you. <laughs> you know what is funny? I I decided I don't have a tell I I have a television show, but I don't have a television, so I watch a lot of my stuff on my phone, which is why my eyesight's going to hell. But uh, so I tuned in yesterday to uh, to join the postal service hearings, and the first guy that comes up is Jim Jordan. So I med- immediately turned that off, and then last night I was going to watch some of the convention. I turned it on. The first guy that came up was. Jim Jordan, so I figured that's the universe speaking to me personally. Uh, so I forego the whole thing and went to my uh, cherished DVD collection of Columbo episodes. Well, I think that's, I think that was wise. I think it's an indication that the universe doesn't like you very much. <laughs> what uh, What was he your sort of everywhere, isn't he? Oh my goodness, goodness gracious! How I I saw clips this morning and. Uh, Tell me all about it. I mean, Kimberly Guilfoyle was completely off the rails. Uh, Don Jr. has obviously found his dad's Adderall stash. And that's just a couple of things I gleaned this morning. But give us the big picture. How did it go? Well, I mean, the, the thing that I think everybody has to remember is that by all conventional standards, uh, the, 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 no pun intended, obviously, by all conventional standards, the Republican convention ended at about 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Because they did the roll call of the states, the president got renominated, and then he gave a speech. That was that. That's supposed to be the end of it, right? But right. instead, we're going to have this four-day, you know, infomercial from hell. You know, where we learn that you know Joe Biden is Castro, and the streets of California are paved with heroin needles, and MS-13 <laughs> is moving next door. Yeah, it's incredible. They've they've got absolutely nothing. And and and, and yes, indeed. Kimberly, Kimberly Guilfoyle uh, was, you know, severely over Mike. And that thing, her speech apparently was taped, which means that was the best take they had. <laughs> yeah, she was revved up. There was no doubt about that. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a couple for I had this vision. I had this vision of that, that, you know, in that empty hall where she was speaking, that there was some poor custodian way in the back that, <laughs> you know, jumped out of his overall. Because all of a sudden this woman was screaming at the other room. Hitting on his flask a little earlier than he does during the uh, while he's making the round sweeping up. Um, really, she, she went spiraling into Robert Plant territory. <laughs> now, where the hell does she come from, anyway? I don't know. I know she used to be married to the current governor of California. Really? Yeah, Gavin Newsom. In fact, there are photos of of them all over the intertube. Wow. The intertubes, uh, of them laying around their luxury apartment in San Francisco. When he was when he was, I think, lieutenant governor. Wow. Uh, yeah, and then she 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 was unflopped for a while. She was a weekend host, and then a you know kind of a, a substitute talking head, which is where she met Junior, <laughs> and he left his family to be with her. Right and now she's a you know 
she's a hundred eighty five thousand dollar a year spokesman slash you know concubine for the family. Wow! So there, uh, she's getting one hundred eighty five. Grand. Yeah, she's getting paid from the campaign. Yeah, and and to and to date Don Jr. because who the hell else would want to? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I I like I, li- I like to be sympathetic and believe there's some sort of you know early primate attraction there too. But yeah. <laughs> Primate is the key word with Don Jr. Boy, I have a hard time with that that guy. That but, man was wired. If you saw that guy in the front row of one of your concerts, you're calling security, aren't you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And he's uh, either that or it's, it's the look you've seen on a lot of people in the front row of your concert. <laughs> yeah, well, back in the day, a lot of them I, I'd let them backstage, but that was uh, that was the crazy '80s when all of that stuff seemed uh, legal, although it wasn't. What? Uh, I am, you know, one thing that really pissed me off, uh, and it's easy to uh, get out of sorts mentally every day when you're following this uh, modern version of the Republican Party, but did they have to ruin the Rose Garden? That's, uh, uh, that's a remarkable thing to me. I don't, I don't know why it was turned into what it was turned into. Uh, it certainly doesn't look the same to me. I'm told by people who know more about gardening than I do that that some of the changes are explicable in purely in purely gardening terms. Mm-hmm. But you know, basically, I think you know, handing this over to Melania Trump, you know, who has no experience at you know culture and grace that I'm aware of, uh, was probably not a good idea. Well, but Charlie, she's got an Einstein visa. Yes, I know that's uh, Bob Einstein. He was a uh, he sold he sold produce by the side of the road in uh, in Thief River Falls. In Sheboygan, right? Yeah, Thief River Falls. Yeah, he was franchised. He had another one in Sheboygan. <laughs> so uh, I imagine you've actually probably been in the in the Rose Garden over the years for uh, probably any number of events. Only only a couple of times, actually. Okay. I haven't done I haven't done much working. At the at the White House, I haven't been to you know many events there. Mm-hmm. I find Congress, in, you know, completely in, in, incredibly more interesting. Have you ever been to uh, uh, a place called the Monocle? It's a little bar right off. Sure, there. absolutely. That was uh, I stumbled out there. I was with my friend Josh Horowitz, who's the executive director of the Stop uh, Stop Gun Violence Coalition in D.C who I met at a Bob Dylan show at Tanglewood because another friend of mine from Boston couldn't make it. He said, hey, could my buddy Josh show up? And so Josh and I have been really good buddies ever since. And they uh, uh, they sponsored me to go out and play the Million Mom March in uh, 1999. We got off the uh, uh, the subway and because uh, I always like to check out where I'm playing the night before. The very first person we ran into was James Brady in his wheelchair with his wife, uh, Wow. Just going down the street. Yeah, it was just, you know, my favorite Dylan line, take what you've gathered from coincidence. So that yeah. that was what, in fact, I've got a picture of it. They couldn't have been nicer. And then, uh, so we did that, and then he goes, well, we got to go have a martini at the Monocle. And I was, it, it was my kind of joint. There was, uh, that evening, there Henry Hyde was having dinner there. Um, Kay Bailey Hutchinson cut into the men's room line that I was standing in because the women's room was too full. And, uh, but it was, I was talking to the bartender who looked like Robert E. Lee. He had been there forever. And I just looked at the guy and he made one of the greatest martinis I've ever had. And I just said, you know where all the bodies are buried, don't you? 
<laughs> and he just <laughs> smiled. But uh, yeah, that that I mean, they had pictures of you know that's where John Tower used to hang out. Steve McQueen. Yeah, that's, that's on, it, it's an old school Capitol Hill joint. Yeah. So when you were, when did you start uh, with you? You know, on your writing beat. When did you start getting out actually into DC? And what were you writing about at the time, Charlie? Pierce? Well, I started long ago uh, covering a little bit of DC in 1979-80 when I was working at the Boston Phoenix. I covered Ronald Reagan's inauguration, for example, in 1980. Hmm. And I covered what was called Washington for Jesus, which was the first great gathering of what became the religious right <laughs> at uh, RFK Stadium. Uh, and it's got Barry McGuire performed. Wow. I got, yeah. to interview Barry, I got to interview Barry McGuire and Dan Levin. Wow. The same day. <laughs> Speaking in last... In, so uh, I was popping in and out even then. Oh, incredible. Uh, and, you know, ever since I've been doing the blog, I've been going pretty regularly. We've got Charlie Pearson for the whole show tonight, uh, one of my favorite political bloggers. He writes for Esquire.com, and uh, he's a big sports nut uh, and, and a really uh, bright and interesting guy. You know, when I was out that same weekend, uh, I was running around um, – no, no, it was a few years later I was out at a, another conference at George Washington University. But I was cruising around the Capitol, and I got in an uh, elevator, and I looked at it with, uh, I want to with Ralph Reed. Really? Yeah. And I go, I should have taken him out at the time. but uh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to listen to a little music. I'll be back with Charlie for the whole show today. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We're doing another episode of Metza's our 6th or 7th. We call it Checkpoint Charlie, featuring the great Charlie Pierce, calling from his home in Massachusetts, who has been uh, part of the watching the Republican convention, so Paul Metza didn't have to. Let's talk, Charlie, a little bit about the uh, DNC. How do you think that went? I thought, you know, considering that, you know, they were making this whole thing up on the fly, nobody ever did this before, I thought the production values were terrific. Yeah. I mean, I thought that there were the, 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 the musical interludes, especially Common and John Legend, were, you know, legendary. Yeah. And, you know, certainly they brought out the A-list of speakers. And Joe Biden gave the greatest speech, you know, I've ever seen him give. Yeah. It was of course, he, of course, if he had hired me as a speechwriter in 1976... You've been giving speeches like that all the time. <laughs> you know, there's a. I actually applied in 1976. A friend of mine got a got me an in. And, really? Uh, yeah, to be Joe Biden. 
one of Joe Biden's speechwriters back in 76, yeah. Well, he might have been, you know, with your... Uh, He'd be building his library by now, pal. That's you. what I was... I was just going to say that. I said uh, he, he would have been, uh, what, the 43rd president or uh, 42nd? Yeah. And <laughs> I would have won in 88 for sure. We'd have gotten him there. We'd have gotten him there in 88. He wouldn't have had to steal from Neil Kinnock. And you'd be and you'd be vacationing in Cape Cod with your lovely wife oh, no, and I'd grandkids. Be some, I'd be some political... I'd be some full-time political analyst somewhere. Did you have you ever written any political political speeches for any candidates? No, I wouldn't do. I mean, as it turns out, I, I mean, I've thought about it. I, I've got too much of an ego to let somebody else have my words. <laughs> I mean, you really have you really have to be able to supplement your sub, you know supplement your ego to to do what you know John Favreau did for Obama or or Sorensen did for Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Now, because we- they get the credit of it. When you said, you know, you started uh, covering politics in the, in the late 70s for the Boston Phoenix, how big of an influence was uh, uh, all that Hunter Thompson stuff from the 72 campaign on you and his political oh, writing? I mean, I mean, the whole – and I went to journalism school, which is a secret I don't usually let out. But, <laughs> you know, between 1971 and 1975, this was when I was in Milwaukee. And the whole new journalism thing at that time, the, the, you know, Tom Wolfe, and of course, and Tom Wolfe and, and Joe Esterhaas and mm-hmm. Michael Hare in Vietnam and, and, and Hunter, obviously. You know, they were, they were, you know, the pole stars for us then. Mm-hmm. They were the, you know, they were the, the things we were aspiring to be. All those, you know, all those great magazines, Willie Morris at Harper's and, and Clay Felker at New York and, and Andre Laguerre at Sports Illustrated. You know, they that was, you know, those were the places we wanted to get to. And so Rampart, they were tremendously. Ramparts cool. Magazine. And Ramparts, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'd forgotten, but yes. Now, did you ever get a because chance? Because that's where Hunter wrote about the Kentucky Derby. That was the first time I ever read him. Right. Now, did you ever get a chance to meet Hunter? No. Uh, we were in the same room a couple times, but we never did. My friend, the late George Kimball, uh, sports writer in Boston who worked with me, who was the sports writer at Phoenix, he knew him pretty well. Hmm. But I, I, I've been in the same room with him, but I never met him. I, I This was at the end when he was, you know, dealing with, as you say, the demons and, right. you know, this chronic pain or whatever it was he had. Uh, so I don't know that, you know, you know, I don't, I don't know that it would have been worth either one of our times to have met him then. There was a great... But, uh, he certainly, I think the last section of what is chapter heading is September in Fear and Loathing, the campaign trail, the section that ends with how low, do you have, how low do you have to stoop in this country to be president is probably the best piece of political writing in the 20th century. Yes. I've, Those two or three paragraphs. I've, I vaguely remember that. I There's a great piece. Uh, it's worth checking out, Charlie Pierce, on YouTube. It's about uh, Bill Murray, who you would never, you know, think about Bill Murray going being depressed or having depression. But uh, he went through uh, – he went through a period of depression, and he uh, was hanging out with Hunter Thompson. And Hunter Thompson said, "Well, you've got to listen to John Prine." And this one particular record, I can't uh, recall it right now. And so Prine got the record and listened to it, and he said it totally lifted him out of this deep, dark, uh, blue depression. And uh, and he has this piece. He goes. You know, he says, who put John Prine in charge of humor? You know, he goes, but it was on a, well, rec- yeah. uh, on a recommendation from Hunter Thompson. I thought, you know, these are the great minds of our times, you know. Well, he was always, I mean, I, I mean, you know, he was always plugging John Prine. In his, in, you know, he was, he was always, you know, writing in the middle of a thunderstorm and, 
drinking gin and, 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 and grapefruit juice and listening to John Prine. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, uh, uh, one of the little projects I have in my back pocket, I, w- I would like to, and now I think I, I might roll it out this week, I've actually uh, put everything in place. Um, but I really think if there's any uh, American icon that deserves a commemorative stamp, it's John Prine. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, so I've actually uh, I've got everything rolled out. I had a, a buddy of mine who's an author in town, a big music guy and a golf guy. He wrote up a proposal, and uh, I had a... You my, have to send it to like, the United States Stamp Commission or something, right? Yeah, yeah, and it usually takes three years. But really what I, what I want to do, Charlie, is get this thing rolling and uh, suggest uh, to people that, hey, you know, go buy, buy a roll of stamps, buy some shipping containers from the United States Postal Service, and while sign the petition. And why, 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 while we still have one. And, uh, my God, we've only got about a minute and a half left. But, yeah, I mean, there's nobody – I mean, there's – I don't think there's a – you know, John Prine, greatest mailman to have ever lived. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I think it's probably fair. <laughs> so, uh, in a minute, Charlie, tell us uh, about uh, – your take on, on Louis DeJoy, and is there any chance we can get rid of him in our lifetime? Well, he's the smuggest son of a bitch in, in, that I've seen in front of Congress in a long time. And that's saying something. Boy. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I think he was put in there to, to, you know, push the Postal Service closer to privatization and to screw up the election. I mean, I think he's got two, he's got two folders in, her, in his portfolio. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have to tell you, I mean, you know, if, if they screw up the Postal Service, the folks in the Iron Ranger are in big trouble. Oh, absolutely. Well, and anybody like myself, uh, independent musician who sells a certain amount of product through the mail. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's, – it's for independent musicians. It is – and like a, a thousand other small businesses, it's our lifeline. Sure. And it was meant to be. See, that's the thing. It was designed to be that. Right. It wasn't designed to be a business. It wasn't designed – to be a profit-making enterprise, yeah. any more than the military was. It's a service, uh, not a business. We've it's got what sh- the government does for you. Yes, exactly. Part of the commons. We've got. Char- I'm thinking of you know all the all those you know retired iron miners and stuff. Oh, with their prescriptions and you know just being able to keep in touch with their people. Absolutely, yeah. And their social security checks and uh, their letters from uh, their grandkids. You know. I mean, it's. Yeah. I love the Postal Service. We got Charlie Pearson for two more sets on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Stick around and uh, we'll be right back. Not all poor men are honest, not all rich men are thieves. But the rich man owns the orchard, you know, the poor man raised the leaves. And as the world goes around, said, All I want to ask is if the rich man owns the land, why must the poor man pay the taxes? Why does justice go so slow? Slow justice slowly grows. Poor means stop and rich means go. Slow justice slowly grows. They see a woman's work is never done. And do you wonder why? They can feed half as much with double time on the by and by. Well, I ain't no big shot doctor, ain't no big shot doctor's kid. But I can tell you that my mother never lived in Radio 
Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour Set 3. I'm your host, Paul Metz, and my guest on Checkpoint Charlie, Mr. Charlie Pierce, one of the most astute political bloggers in the country, and you can follow him on Esquire.com. And uh, always a pleasure having Mr. Pierce on. Charlie, what, um, what is your fear in the upcoming election? You've got the gerrymandering. You've got the hacked voting machines. You've got all the problems now with the Postal Service. I mean, I think there's still a half a chance Trump could pull this out. Well, I, think, I think there's you know a little bit better than half a chance. Uh, what I'm really worried about is that period between election night and inauguration day. Yeah, I think these you know things could unless unless Biden wins by a margin you can't. I mean, it's a great story uh, they tell about Joe Lewis before the second Schmeling fight, where he was he was wearing the, the judges would. Uh, would take, you know that he, he would go the fight would go the distance, and the judges would take you know the the judges would take uh, his, you know take the fight away from him, and his trainer told him, "Joe, let your right hand be your judge." Hmm. And unless you know Biden lets his right hand be his judge, uh, there's going to be hell to pay in the in the immediate aftermath. Right. But they will contest everything, mm-hmm. and they have no compunction about lying. That's all they do. I mean, I mean, they have absolutely no compunction about making. I mean, you thought. I mean, two thousand was sort of a dry run, mm-hmm. but it was small potatoes compared to what these people are capable of. Yeah, it's in uh, uh, four more years of Trump. I mean, I just, I can't. I, I'm moving to Finland. I'm moving back to. Yeah. I'm the, Not the, a bad place to go. Yeah, m- moving back to the mother country. I mean, I just, I couldn't. I can't even imagine it. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm off to Ireland, but I'm sure I can get over. You know, not that far. <laughs> we'll meet in Oslo. Um, there we go, <laughs> Charlie. Um, this, uh, you know, the things I saw, the clips I saw this morning, the, uh, after the opening night of the uh, the, the the Trump uh, circus called the Republican National Convention. We pretty much cured the coronavirus. That's disappeared. Um, the Russians aren't meddling. No big no, deal on the bounties. Democrats are the Democrats are meddling. And, yeah. You know, it was his fast action that, uh, you know, saved millions of lives if you don't count the 170,000 that are apparently, you know, casualties of war or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that one poll where 51% of Republicans said 170,000 deaths were a proper price to pay for, you know, the pandemic. Well, I, I don't know. I can't. That's what I, I can't. I'm supposed to engage these people, but I don't know how. I don't know how to speak that language. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the ask when they say right to life. Then there's an asterisk. And that's why. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's an asterisk on everything. Yeah. Well, it's still uh, I, I still it boggles my mind that. Nobody's been able to make this, the bounty gate, the Russian bounty gate thing stick. It's been, what, almost 50 days now. Um, it looks like uh, Putin had this, is it, uh, Navalny? Who's the guy, the uh, the guy that was just poisoned? Navalny? Navalny. Yeah. Um, and Trump, I, I swear to God, is still going to want to meet with Putin in October. You know, he's going to want to put him in the G7. I mean, that's going to be 
And you watch if, if, you know, Uncle Vlad's traveling medicine show comes up with something like a vaccine, he's going to knuckle the FDA into approving it. Yeah. In October, you know, late September and October. When did uh, when did the Republicans learn to love Russia? With this president. I mean, there's always, I mean, they've always, you know, they loved it as, as, as a trophy in the late 1980s and 90s because they you know, kept pushing this line that Reagan was the one who brought down the Soviet Empire. So they liked having the USSR as a trophy. And then they liked, you know, having this, be able to, you know, inject this University of Chicago unbridled capitalism into the Republican economy, into the Russian economy, which is, by the way, how we got Vladimir Putin mm-hmm. and the autocracy in the first place. Uh, so I guess I guess the, the groundwork was laid for it then. Uh, it, it, it's just astounding. Why? Um, what, do you, what do you feel uh, the Democrats, Biden, Harris, and the whole Tom Perez and company, what are they missing or what could they use right now in terms of uh, pushing their point, pushing their agenda, hitting the Republicans where it hurts? What are they missing? Well, I think, I, I think they're, they're smartly staying out of the way as the Republican Party puts on this, put on, I think they smartly stayed out of the way when the Republican Party put on this festival of fruitcake this week. Because, you know, let, you know, you know, you know, when your opponent's drowning, throw them an anchor. Don't, uh, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't lend them a hand. Right. After that, uh, I think they need to hit a little bit harder on the destruction of the federal judiciary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think you're right. I think that the Russian bounty story is something that they could push. But I hope to God they're setting up a war room already to fight the battle after Election Day. Yeah. I mean, I hope they've got, you know, 5,000 lawyers yeah. you know, on speed dial yeah. ready to go to state capitals the morning after the election. Yeah. Every because st- they get caught flat-footed the way the Democrats did in 2000. They're in big trouble. Yeah. Well, and... Uh... You know, we're still living. We're still living that nightmare, right? Twenty years later. Dead. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, the previous are, worst Republican president of all time. What uh, What's going on? I haven't been following it lately. Uh, what I know about Ed Markey is a hell of a great guy, a real environmentalist. Uh, well, it's gotten on? ugly. It's gotten very, very ugly over the last week here. Yeah. So, tell the people uh, out here in Minnesota what's going on out there. Well, he's being challenged in the Democratic primary by Joe Kennedy the third, uh, Robert Kennedy's grandson, currently my congressman actually, hmm. uh, for reasons that you know outside of pure political ambition, I haven't been able to discern. I mean, his two points seem to be he's ambitious and Joe and Ed Markey's old, right? But over the last week or so, it's gotten very, very nasty, which was inevitable because it's a, you know, it's a Massachusetts Democratic primary with a Senate seat at stake. Mm-hmm. But it's not, I mean, I hate the election because I like guys. Yeah. And I've known Ed Markey probably for longer than I've known any politician except maybe Barney Frank and Mike Dukakis. Hmm. Because Ed Markey was a, you know, a rising star when I was at Phoenix. So. Barney Frank, now there's a guy I'd love to have a cocktail with. 
He's an interesting character. He will say something every 10 minutes that absolutely enrages you. <laughs> but it, 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 he's very fun to argue with. I remember in, uh, I believe it was 88, Dukakis came to my hometown, Virginia, Minnesota, and uh, had a uh, had a little rally. And uh, I'm not sure if how much before or after that he put the helmet on and took the ride in the tank. But, uh, um, but yeah, now tell us a little bit about, I mean, Massachusetts, there's no more, it's one of the most storied political states in the country. Did you ever get a chance to uh, hang out around Ted Kennedy? I did a, a long feature on him for his uh, 40th anniversary in the Senate. I, I spent the time in his office and, and did a couple of long interviews with him. Uh, he was, again, I mean, he was a giant at what he did. And his record has a, a gigantic black spot on it mm-hmm. that he was never able to get out from under. Mm-hmm. Nor should he have, to my mind. Right. What about uh, uh, the other guy I would have loved to have uh, uh, cocktails with is Tip O'Neill. I knew I knew his son, Tom the Third, very well. Okay. I knew Tip casually. Tom was the lieutenant governor when I was at Phoenix. Okay. So I got to know him. He was a good guy. I liked Tom. Well, he was always called Tommy, even though he was 50 years old, mm-hmm. uh, because Tip was Tom. But, uh, you know, if anybody wants to understand Tip O'Neill, find Jimmy Breslin's Watergate book. Okay. How the Good Guys Finally Won. Because he goes through the impeachment summer in Tip O'Neill's office. Hmm. And he wrote most of the book, or so I'm told, uh, at a, a Capitol Hill bar called, I can't remember the name of the bar now. Uh, oh, damn, this is awful. Uh, God dang, what the hell the name of the... Uh, 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 this is uh, this is very embarrassing. <laughs> uh, because it's a very famous Capitol Hill bar. Very big junior staffers bar. Uh, the, the, it's not the do drop in, it's the something in. The tune in, there we go. There we go, all right, Charlie. The tune in, yeah, I had to come around to it. <laughs> but supposedly Breslin wrote a lot of the books there. Well, well, that that will give you an idea of Tip O'Neill. We've got uh, he was you know he was he liked his Manhattans. I'll tell him that. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, it's like FDR used to say uh, about martinis: four martinis and a treaty. There we go. <laughs> uh, we've got about a little over a minute left. Speaking of great uh, uh, big city writers, we just lost. Pete Hamill, who I knew was a uh, oh. influence on you, and uh, oh, sure, and, and a good and, and a friend, and a, and just a great human being. And you had a you had a you mentioned on uh, Twitter a, a few weeks ago after he passed, you had a, a great night with him somewhere that involved oh, Bob yeah. Dylan in a boxing oh, match. Surprised we haven't talked about this before. Uh, before the uh, Mike Tyson Carlos Stevenson fight in Atlantic City, the Terry Lighting kind of went to the Herald, and Pete was there because he always went to. You know, big fights, and he was interested in Tyson because of the New York and Customato thing. And the night before the fight, Friday night before the fight, Dylan was playing with Steve Earle at really? uh, and the Dukes, yeah, the Copperhead Road Swim, uh, at Valley Grand. Okay. And I said to my friend Mike Farber, who was from Montreal at the time, later went on to Sports Illustrated, and a couple of other Canadian writers, man, we got to go see Bob Dylan in the casino. This is too great. And I mentioned to Pete what we were doing, and Pete said, do you mind if I come along? Hmm. And I said, sure. You know, what I know. Right. Uh, and he came along with us, and we watched, and 
he was very taken with Steve Earle. He's, he's never heard Steve Earle before. Oh, great. And uh, it was Bob was touring with uh, G. E. Smith and that bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's so late 80s. Afterwards, afterwards, we all went to a bar, and Pete, of course, had already written a drinking life and wasn't drinking anymore. But he sat there and told a story about, you know, being in the village. You know, when Dylan got there and hanging out at the Lion's Head with the Clancy Brothers. And, oh, my God. You know, all, and you never saw four sports writers more quiet in your life. <laughs> and it was just a great, great night. That sounds that sounds like the... It was, I mean, it was just a terrific night, and... And Bob was a great show, and Steve Roll was a great show. So. The the, uh, the universe was in, in perfect order. It it, absolutely. All the planets were aligned. I have to, uh, uh, a drinking life. I've got to get that book. We've got one more set coming up with the great Charlie Pierce. Uh, we'll be back in just a bit. Well, my name's Tom Lee Pettimore. Same as my daddy and his daddy before. You hardly ever saw granddaddy down here They only come a town about twice a year They buy a hundred pounds of yeast and some copper line Everybody knew that we made me shine Now the revenue man on a granddaddy bed He left a holler of everything Welcome back to Four Side of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We've got Checkpoint Charlie, Mr. Charlie Pierce on tonight. It's always such a pleasure to have uh, Charlie on. My uh, psychological morphine drip to all things political. Charlie, when now? Uh, how often do you appear on Stephanie Miller's show? Every Tuesday at uh, ten thirty Eastern. Okay. Well, that's. Uh, Everybody out there in AM 950 Radio Land, mark that down. Stephanie, of course, I she... I get 9.30 your time. Yeah, she comes in. Stephanie comes in uh, every every few years to come to the uh, Blue State Ball, which is kind of the celebration of AM 950 and a bit of a fundraiser. And uh, yeah. I've had the pleasure of actually uh, playing behind Stephanie. She has... You might find this hard to believe. She likes her Chardonnay, and uh, she can sing a little bit. So she sat in with my band. Yeah, off the... She's off the Chardonnay now. Oh, okay. Well, she's gotten healthy. She's gotten healthy during the pandemic. Well, she was uh, Chardonnay or no Chardonnay. She's a ball to hang out with, and uh, oh yeah. And she yeah. was like, she was like uh, Grace Slick the night she played with us. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> she played with your band? Yeah, yeah. She said, and I can't remember what uh, what we sang. Oh hell yeah, she was uh, she was a big. It was oh, that's, big I'm, fun. I'm sorry, that's not on tape. <laughs> I, it probably is somewhere. I'll have to. I'll have to dig it up. So, Charlie, um, what is your uh, uh, what's what, what's your gut telling you? What do you what do you think the country's going through? What the mail in voting, the election? I mean, help help me out here, brother. Well, I mean, I think you know, I think we're all coming to grips with how fragile almost everything is. Mm-hmm. How fragile the, the system of government is, how fragile we all are, how fragile public health is, how fragile the health care system is. I mean, we're also we're surrounded by all this fragility all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Americans are used to that, and they certainly don't like it. Well, I kind of look at it like uh, uh, the pandemic, you know, it's a problem, but it's not the problem, but what it has done, it has exposed the problem. Like, I look at it, it's like an x-ray of the body politic. And so, what does the pandemic show? Yeah, well, you have a spot on your liver. The liver is 
the healthcare system. You have a spot on your lung. What's the lung? The lung is the uh, uh, the police and uh, and the uh, you know all, all things related to Black Lives Matter. So there's so many different, I think, uh, like you say, points of fragility in this country. If there's an upside to it, I think, and I'm a born optimist, I couldn't have been in the music business for 40 years if I wasn't, is that now we know where these pressure points are. I mean, I think most of us kind of always knew they were there, but because overall I think it's been overlooked by the fact that we've been kind of cruising along on cruise control for a long time. Well, yeah, I mean, not only that, but, you know, I, 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 one, of the, one of the great things about this particular period of history is all the black folks saying, you know, welcome to our world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where y'all been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been living. We've been living this life for four hundred years. Where you been? No, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and you know the other thing, I have my uh, friends calling me and they go, "Jeez, uh, what's going on in Minneapolis?" I go, "Yeah, we had our riots. We had three hundred million dollars in damage. Of course, you know, uh, that thirtieth in Chicago where George Floyd was killed." I used to play at a theater seven blocks from there. I grew up in South Minneapolis. I know that neighborhood well. Our our city really came around. I, Charlie I was so proud to see how Minneapolis slowly bounced back and how neighbors came together to clean up the neighborhoods and we're yeah, a neighborhood. And, and apparently there's a there's a lovely memorial there now, right? Yeah, there absolutely is, and it's uh, and the, 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 the case against the police is moving forward it's moving forward right. yeah no and uh, uh keith ellison is in charge our attorney general and uh, uh i think our governor's been doing a great job a lot of our you know jacob fryer mayor has, has taken a lot of guff but uh i think he's doing as well as he can i mean these are you know totally uncharted waters but you have people like uh, people like you have Trump out going out there going, oh, my God, we're going to we need to bring in the National Guard to places like Minneapolis because they're on fire. Charlie, when I, I live in northeast Minneapolis, I walk my dog in my pajamas and my slippers at midnight. You know, I mean, I've, I know that's I mean, that's your alternate reality. OK, that's that's what I I can't. You know, you don't cover an event like this Republican convention because they're not talking about the world you live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know. Take something. I mean, it takes something beyond journalism to be able to cope with all this. It, it reminds me. Well, I did a story on the the tenth anniversary of Katrina. I went down to New Orleans uh, and talked to a lot of people who who had come through it. And one of the guys I talked to was a doctor who had been in Charity Hospital the whole time. And uh, he told me a story about listening to the radio during one of the very infrequent breaks he had, and he was eating a sandwich. He listened to the, to the radio, and the radio was reporting that armed men had broken into the pharmacy at Charity Hospital and were stealing all the drugs. And as the doctor told me, the funny thing was, I was listening to it in the pharmacy at Charity Hospital. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So, I mean, people in Minneapolis are hearing this at the convention going, well, yeah, we had a bad few nights there, but the hell are these people talking about now? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it, you know... And that is fake news. That's the real fake news. Not the fake fake news. You know what I mean? It's not even a fake news. It's a fake world. It's a fake yeah. universe. Absolutely. Let's, uh, we got a minute, minute and a half left. The last time, uh, we had, uh, Charlie Pierce on with, uh, our, one of our, uh, favorite, 
continuing continuing series called Checkpoint Charlie. We were talking about Bob Dylan's new record. Have you had a chance to dive in a little more to Rough and Rowdy Ways, Charlie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I get a new favorite song every time I listen to it. What's your What's your last uh, new favorite? Well, Key West is my favorite now. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, I went, I ran that through four or five times. Uh, I think I'll come back to Murder Most Foul though eventually. Yeah, because it was such it was such a, an earthquake of an event. You know, all of a sudden, here's this thing on the Internet, like a voice from, you know, the American past, uh, you know, out of nowhere. And then, an, you know, a, a post from Bob saying, hey, I had this song laying around. Hope you like it. Right. It's such a villain thing to do, you know. Oh, totally. Well, you know what I love? Uh, the, that great line in Key West. And there's so many great lines in that record. I mean, there's dozens and dozens. Yeah. But when he said, you know, talking about Key West, he said, if you lost your mind... You can find it there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I just had uh, Ann Margaret Daniel on, the, the great professor. Oh, isn't she great? Oh, she's fantastic. And uh, she is a huge fan of yours. And I said, because uh, she, I've had her on three times now. I'm going to have one more time on just to do Murder Most Fall. But, uh, yeah, when I get her on, uh, it's kind of like uh, – uh, it's like Gilligan and the professor, you know, <laughs> college drama with the professor. She's so brilliant, but she's a yeah, huge. I, 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 she's, I, I, I mean, she's big at Scott Fitzgerald, man. She's very big on Minnesota artists. Yeah, she sure is, and she's just a sweetheart. Well, Charlie Pierce, uh, we will be in touch a few more times here before the election, providing oh, our well. union is still intact. You have a great rest of the summer, my brother, and uh, always a pleasure, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, pal. Thanks, uh, hopefully I'll talk to you from the road at some point when it's, yeah, I'm able to get back there. For sure, man. Have a great rest of the week. Okay, Paul. Bye-bye. I was working at Ferretta's junkyard. She had a mustache and a rose tattoo. I was living in the shack in Dogtown with my old man and his girlfriend, too. One day my old man left me with a picture of mother with her own Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Mensah and engineered by Patrick Lilia. I've got some big news coming up. I'm re-releasing a record I did called Whistling Past the Graveyard in 1992. It was produced by Bucky Baxter, who was playing with Bob Dylan at the time. It features Gary Talent, Bruce Springsteen's bass player, and George Marinelli, who's been playing with Bonnie Raitt for the last 20 years on guitar. It's got 11 original tunes and four bonus tracks. Follow me at paulmetza.com to find out where to stream that for free. You can also donate a few bucks if you'd like. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.